Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Hello, welcome back to Behind the Knife. I'm Michael Vu. Well over a year since COVID-19 first hit the news, we are still in the midst of the pandemic. The relative success of social distancing, masking, and especially vaccinations shows us the light at the end of the tunnel. But one dark aspect of COVID-19 that is still being illuminated is the disparate impact that it has had on Black Americans and other minorities in this country. And I don't think this is anything new. It's not that I don't, I don't think COVID-19 is a novel way in which minorities face disparities in health outcomes, but rather I suspect it is a severe example of longstanding structural inequity that affects the health of our patients, including the patients of surgeons, and especially during the health crisis like the one that we find ourselves in. We have previously published an episode about structural racism broadly in medicine, as well as a Journal Club episode about disparities in COVID-19 outcomes. As it turns out, the Joint Commission has been serious about tackling the issues of health disparities and diversity in medicine, and so we wanted to have them on the show to further explain those initiatives. Joining me is a returning guest host, Dr. Fabian Johnston, who many of you will recognize from prior episodes on both palliative care as well as the structural racism episode. He is the division chief of GI Oncology, director of the peritoneal surface malignancy program, and the program director of the complex general surgical oncology program at Johns Hopkins. Hello, Dr. Johnston. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you so much for uh, having me again. Of course. It's our pleasure. Thank you for being on the show. It, it means a lot to us that you can share your time with us and help facilitate our conversation. Uh, our guest expert today and representative from the Joint Commission is Dr. Anna McKee. She is the Executive Vice President, Chief Medical Officer, and Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer of the Joint Commission. She's a medical school graduate of Hahnemann Medical College and Hospital and completed a residency in internal medicine at Presbyterian Medical Center in Philly. Her career has been studied with several leadership positions prior to her current job at the Joint Commission, including being a former board member of the American Cancer Society and the FDA Advisory Committee, as well as the CMO of Penn Presbyterian Medical Center. Thank you for joining us today, uh, Dr. McKee. Thank you for having me. So, you know, I wanted to see, Dr. McKee, if you could start us off, set the stage. What is the current state of disparities in healthcare? Uh, where have we come from? Uh, where are we now? And, and where do you see the needle moving? So I want to make two points in answering this question. The first is that disparities in healthcare uh, was first, not first, but it was, has been summarized in the Institute of Medicine report of unequal treatment. And disparities in healthcare is one of the most studied research problems that have remained mostly unaddressed, despite the overwhelming evidence and persistence of gaps in almost all areas of health. And that, that's puzzling in that this is a problem that is a major patient safety concern, and it provides and introduces as much risk as a central line uh, bloodstream infection or as a fall. However, it has been ignored, and that's very problematic. Uh, we know that patient safety includes all aspects of a human's life, including unsafe care that may be related to the color of their skin or the language they speak. 
So we really have an unusual problem in healthcare. It's been well defined. I can't tell you how many people have uh, made their research and their PhDs on this topic, but yet no one or very few organizations are picking up the ball and addressing it, especially as a patient safety concern. You know, Dr. McKee, you know, that's a very um, important point um, because we tend to hear um, from others and colleagues, you know, we didn't know that, we didn't hear, we didn't see that. Um, and so when we're thinking of these disparities, uh, you, you've, co you've coached it now as a safety and quality issue, which it is. Um, and so how do we get folks to prioritize that? Maybe with your joint commission hat on um, and then maybe in, or more broadly, how do we get folks to then prioritize? What, what are the issues we're facing? Well, Dr. Johnston, I get that question often. And um, I think one of the obstacles in addressing it is the detectability of the problem. Do the healthcare leaders even know that there is a gap? And are they collecting the data with the intent to look for gaps in outcomes? And that's one problem. The second problem is the notion that they have to build a different infrastructure to address this problem. When they're already performance, already existing performance improvement structure is in place and it should be treated like any other patient safety concern and it should use the expertise of those performance improvement experts in identifying the critical data they need, analyzing the data, identifying the root causes of that problem and putting in place interventions and monitoring over time their progress in closing those gaps. And the gaps could be in colonoscopy screening or mammography. It could be vaccinations. It could be access to timely um, surgical interventions for hips and joint replacements. And as you know, Dr. Johnson, there's a list of many surgical procedures that have been well documented to demonstrate unchanging gaps over periods of time in terms of the differences between what a white patient will get and what people of color will get. I'm really glad that you point that out because, you know, uh, some of my colleagues, when I, when I post this um, issue to them, uh, my surgery colleagues, they'll, I, I've heard in the past, they'll say, you know, some, a patient's race doesn't affect the way that I make my cuts doesn't affect the way that I give them post-operative care, um, but uh, and so and so racism isn't a problem for my practice. Um, but as you point out, there are well-documented gaps. What what are the mechanisms of these gas gaps, and and why is it so hard to to grasp that 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 this problem affects them as well? That is almost a dangerous comment that was made. That color does not affect uh, my incision. Um, what I would ask that individual to consider is that that person's color has affected all, has been affected by all of the decisions that led up to that point where he's going to make or she's going to make her first incision. And that we can't deny that. How was the person treated when they first registered? Was their data collected? Were they treated uh, fairly? What kinds of 
um, questions were asked to make sure that the patient's post-operative period is going to be the safest one? Or were there assumptions made? Was there bias introduced as to what that person is going to need or not need? What was the informed consent for an individual who happens to also be of another language and needed a lot of accommodation to get them to the same level as any white person who is literate would understand that procedure? So to say that the color does not affect their incision negates the, the journey that that patient took through our healthcare systems that are innately filled with bias, institutional racism, and structures that just don't work for people of color and other minority groups. Dr. Johnston, what do you think about that statement? So this goes to, that statement is the same one as someone says, I don't see color. And it has the same um, uh, effect and connotation and shows a lack of understanding. If you take the case example um, of, of colon cancer, Dr. McKee was, was putting forth, um, let's start with the uh, whether or not someone gets screened, right? And so we know that African-Americans are known to be diagnosed with colon cancer earlier and more recently, um, not just with chat with Bozeman uh, succumbing to his cancer. And when we see uh, Ibrahim X. Kendall just had a, 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 um, a report, I think, in one of the uh, um, uh, New Yorker or something talking about he was he presented with stage four colon cancer with uh, liver metastasis. Um, someone has to actually be offered screening. Someone has to have access to uh, get to a colonoscopy, which in rural areas where um, that may be an issue. Um, someone has to uh, also um, be offered the colonoscopy as opposed to some other uh, measure that may be out there. Um, and so there are multiple issues just getting to the, uh, to the ability to obtain a colonoscopy. Now, when we get a colonoscopy, what happens next? Uh, oh, and oh, we didn't even mention traveling to get a colonoscopy, right? And so we think about social determinants of health and environments and abilities to do so. Now someone gets a colonoscopy, we discover a colon cancer. And so the decision to, um, to do an operation is something that is going to be some people, there is a paternalism and so uh, that exists in medicine and system and structures that are in place where some people aren't even offered operations. I literally have uh, patients who have waited for a few years that I've seen recently despite a diagnosis of a cancer, right? Uh, and then um, um, are they appropriately treated? And so do they have, have they undergone appropriate staging of their cancer as you would standardly? And this is known to not occur uh, as well for minority patients. And then let's say that they have an advanced stage cancer, right? One that may require chemotherapy. Do they actually get consolidation of their therapy? And as Dr. McKee was saying, what are all those things that happen along the way in the care of those patients? So, so it's naive to think that these things are not relevant. And um, I think certainly, you know, uh, surgeons tend to, um, as many physicians, but we're, we're no less guilty of this, focus on one specific thing as opposed to acknowledging the nature uh, and the systems and structures, as Dr. McKee said, that are in place that lead to these healthcare inequities. Dr. Vu, can I, I think this is a great opportunity to talk about why the belief that you don't see color, the assumption is that you give equal care to everyone. 
because you don't see the color. And that's an erroneous assumption and it's not helpful um, in the sense that we need to see color, we need to see language differences, and we need to see and try to understand the cultural differences. Because the answer to disparities is to provide equitable care, not equal care. And I want to just spend a minute explaining what the difference is. Okay, so let's say we have three patients, they all have a mobility issue. One has plantar fasciitis, the other one has an arthritic knee, and the third one has had a hemiplegia from a stroke. They all want to improve their mobility. Equal care means you give them all a cane and you tell them you're all done. Okay, the person who's hemiplegic, that does not help. And the person with fasciitis, it may or may not help. Equitable care, however, means that you may put the first person with plantar fasciitis on either medication or physical therapy and treat them over time and perhaps a cane. It means that the person with arthritic knee will may get an injection, may get a non-steroidal, and may get a cane. And it means that the person with the hemiplegia is going to get the right kind of motorized vehicle or a wheelchair. And they will all have improved their mobility because you gave the care that was specific to the needs of each one. And we have to move from the idea that we're going to give equal care to everyone because what we have to do is understand the need and give the right care to the right person at the right time for the need they have. I love that example. I mean, is it is it fair to say, uh, I'm trying to process it myself, but is it fair to say that, you know, when we ignore somebody's race, when we ignore the color of their skin, we're not taking into account the fact that people start at different places and, and, and like, like your analogy spot states, um, pe people have different systemic structural issues that need to be addressed, um, that we can't just put, you know, the same care for, for everybody. Absolutely. And, and I think something that the McKee said early on, people try and make this more difficult than it is. You know, let's, let's even go into what I do. I'm a cancer surgeon, right? I'm a cancer doc. There are anxieties that present themselves with patients. And so should I ignore those things when a patient comes up with cancer? A good doc would say, I'm going to address you holistically. I'm going to address your needs. And I recognize that there's a, a familial issue. What does your family need? And that's why we have social workers and we have patient navigators. When you're caring for a patient, all of that is relevant. And so it, it doesn't mean you have to create all these entirely new structures. You just actually have to consider the fact that everyone, as you said, um, Dr. Wu, everyone is not coming at the same to you at the same way. And so let me take a few minutes to understand where these folks are. Many of these folks aren't just presenting to you and you don't build relationships. Right. There is an opportunity. You're a primary care doc. What are you doing? You're building relationships right, with these patients. Let's do that. As a surgeon, I'm also building relationships with my patients as well. And so let me ask some of these formative questions that may help me provide the right care at the right time um, for the right person. Allow me to raise another, I think, troublesome, but all too familiar argument that I hear from, from some surgeons or some, or some doctors widely. You know, I've heard in the past that, well, you know, doesn't this really boil down to socioeconomic status? Um, what I, you know, it's not that I, I need to see race, it's that I need to see somebody's socioeconomic status. 
What, why, what, what's wrong with that argument? You know, there's a wonderful example that kind of tells you that the social economic status is not the problem. Uh, I forget which of the, the Williams sister, whether it was Serena or Venus, I always confuse them, but one of them had had a history of pulmonary embolus. And she was expecting, and at the time of delivery, she was telling the doctor and the nurses, I'm experiencing the same symptoms of when I had a pulmonary embolus. And they did not believe her and there was delay in treatment. Now, all of us would agree that the Williams sisters' social economic status far exceeds anybody I know. Yet there's some biases in how women of color are listened to, how their symptoms are received and processed because they are women of color. So we cannot hide behind the socioeconomic status because the data also has been shown again, study after study, that this is not an insurance issue. In the absence of all of those, if you equalize all of those factors, you will still find gaps in care and outcomes of people of color and white people. Those statements suggest that we don't have underlying bias, right? And, you know, no one wants to believe they have bias uh, because they feel the next jump is to racism, right? That they're racist. But let's be, let's be clear, right? We all have biases. And I, I never forget as an intern, a surgery intern, my, one of my attendings said to me, be careful of people that are old, overweight, or have mental disorders because you're more likely to negate what they're saying to you, right? And so, you know, somebody that's obese, you know, I can, if I have a bias against them, I'm less likely to provide adequate care and they present with a, uh, you know, a sore uh, on their thigh that turns into necrotizing fasciitis. I've seen it as a, as a surgery resident and, and, and we acknowledge that bias was there. And that was a very sage advice to me that I carried throughout my medical training to say, let me, you know, be cognizant of this. There's no difference for anything else. People have bias against women, as Dr. McKee said, people have bias against minorities. You know, again, the issue we, we've known from the study that multiple studies that African-Americans um, are, uh, um, there's a perception that they have higher pain tolerance. And so they're less likely to receive pain medications, right? That has nothing to do with how rich I am, right? If I come in with a broken leg, I want, <laughs> I may want certain things, right? Agnostic of who I am. And so, and who knows what underlies that, but that bias is still there. And these are very smart people, medical training that are, 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 are making these statements or, or making these clinical choices. And so we make multiple clinical choices based upon biases every day, um, you know, and, you know, for, for, even if you go past that, we are biased in what we do from a clinical management standpoint. Well, my attending did this and this is how I've done this. And so let's be honest about our biases and, and recognize we have to go further to address this for this group of patients that is having an exceptionally higher burden, um, which are minority patients. I'd like to pivot and ask um, doc, perhaps Dr. McKee first now, how is COVID-19 really exposed um, the inequities in, in health outcomes amongst minorities in America? 
Well, it most definitely has. And the most uh, astonishing statistic is that uh, Latinos and African-Americans, the death rate is uh, 5.6 compared to 2.3 of whites. The hospitalization rates are higher. The impact has been uh, deadly on these communities. And there's lots of reasons. Uh, some people want to assume, oh, well, you know, weakness in the race or weakness in the individual. But in fact, so many of the Hispanic and African-American community are essential workers. We tend to live in intergenerational housing where you cannot social distance. We tend to have jobs that don't give us the opportunity or time off to get vaccinated or to go to a doctor. We tend to be in positions that have really uh, been high risk positions. At the beginning of the pandemic, the Joint Commission, which annually receives about 22,000 complaints from patients, families, healthcare workers, healthcare agencies, we received so many complaints from frontline healthcare workers, many of them food services and environmental people who were being told, you don't need PPE. Yes, we did that. We, uh, healthcare institutions put a lot of individuals uh, uh, at high risk because initially the understanding was that direct caregivers uh, needed the PPE. So all of these contributing factors have led to a horrific, a horrific experience for the black and brown communities and the Asian communities too, which also have a higher death rate than Caucasians. Um, we now have to deal with the hesitation of vaccine, which I also think is misunderstood. And there's a quick uh, jump to assumption that uh, people of color and Hispanics don't want the vaccine. The difference in the vaccine discussion that occurs every day is a, con a conversation that may go this way. With the white patient, there may be uh, an explanation and uh, reasons why, uh, uh, the risk and benefits. And with people of color and Hispanics, there may be a conversation like, I know you're kind or your folks don't really want vaccines, so we're not gonna spend a lot of time on this topic. Okay, that happens with screening, that happens with vaccination, that happens with all kinds of therapies and options. An assumption that there is no interest and therefore the conversation starts, stops right there. So uh, I don't know that there's the hesitancy that folks are speaking about. There is a lot of reason, historical reason that there, sh there would be hesitancy. But I think this has brought the level of concern to people of color to a completely different level. And we shouldn't assume that there is disinterest in getting vaccinated. You know, there is certainly um, a lot of interest in, in getting vaccination, but you have to, as Dr. McKee said, you have to have a conversation with someone. So I'll tell you, in my clinic, I've had um, some days I'm talking more about COVID than vaccinations. I mean, then then cancer, right? Mm -hmm. um, and because I am centering that conversation with my patients because I think it's that important. Why? Because for me, we're seeing patients who aren't showing up for screening anything at this point. So they're gonna mm -hmm. present with advanced cancer, right? 
um, that's going to have a, a, a worse outcome for them in the long run. So for me, it's part and parcel of what I do. Similarly, you know, early in COVID, you know, my colleagues said, you know, we vascular surgeons, we used to do a certain amount of amputations, you know, per week. Somehow these people aren't coming into the emergency room. So we weren't seeing these people, right, um, to provide uh, the care that um, they needed. And so it's important to have these conversations. And what we know is that it's the uh, part of the reason why there is improved health outcomes and health maintenance when there's racial concordance is simply because that conversation is occurring. You don't have to, however, be a person of color to have that conversation. You just have to center, I need to have a conversation as opposed to what Dr. McKee said, which is what does occur um, is we are, um, there is a paternalism um, that occurs where people decide, make a decision for someone else, uh, that that is not what they want, which, you know, we need to be fair uh, to folks and acknowledge, again, it comes all back around to uh, these biases. And again, also, I want to acknowledge, we talked about folks saying, I, I don't, uh, socioeconomic status. Well, you know, as I, I sat here, I, I looked up a physician, uh, Dr. Susan Moore, who died because people weren't paying attention to her, mm -hmm. right? She's a physician, right? And she was asking for folks to pay attention to her symptoms and she died uh, from COVID. And so we've had a lot of healthcare, frontline and healthcare workers. And interestingly, as Dr. McKee said, when you look at some of the percent of healthcare workers that have passed, you see a, a lot of Filipinos, a lot of mm -hmm. Southeast Asians that have succumbed to the disease, right? Um, and so we have to acknowledge um, the, the burden that has been there uh, for all groups. Absolutely. And again, um, you know, going off of what you're saying, Dr. McKee, I mean, in my mind, it, it does seem exactly count, counterproductive to see a minority patient in your office and assume that you're not going to need, you know, to, to have a detailed conversation with them about vaccinations. It seems to me like that's the person specifically who does need more attention from the physician and not necessarily a paternalistic discussion, but a deep discussion about the merits of something such as screening or, or vaccination. It takes an insightful physician, a committed physician to dedicate the time to that conversation. If the physician is thinking, I got 15 minutes for you and I'm gonna be equal with everybody, everybody's gonna get 15 minutes. Uh, again, not, I'm gonna give you the time that you need to make sure that you have an informed, you're gonna make an informed consent here. Um, I know Dr. Johnson has had these experiences where people come to them after they've been treated by someone else. And they, they come to you with a sense of you know, relief and feeling secure because the distrust that they experience with someone who either dismissed them or didn't answer their questions or gave them uh, no opportunity to get the options offered to them. Um, this is not an uncommon thing for a physician of color. And I'm sure many white patients, physicians have experienced the receipt of a patient from someone else who was dismissive. Um, we have to start monitoring ourselves and our colleagues. And we need to have crucial conversations when we see it. Um, I believe that some physicians may not even know that they are part of the problem. You know, we all could be part of the problem in two different ways, by 
being dismissive and not being attentive to this issue or by being silent. Those two things are keeping us where we are, which is nowhere way further than we were 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, that actually leads me to my next question. I'm curious um, to know from, from both you, Dr. McCann, and you, Dr. Johnston, about your perspectives on diversity amongst the healthcare workforce and how perspectives from a diverse, you know, physician pool, nursing pool, provider pool, how that, do we have evidence that this impacts in a beneficial way our patients and, and in what, by what mechanisms? One, there is substantial amounts of evidence um, that it does improve outcomes for these patients. And you've already heard um, um, that one, uh, there is a comfort uh, that folks have. And I don't think that that's, that's, that's for everyone, right? There are, you know, when I, I used to work in Milwaukee and, you know, I've had some very honest uh, conversations with some of my Caucasian patients about how folks said, you know, why are you going to that black doctor? And, you know, they um, may have felt more comfortable with another surgeon, but they got me and they were happy at the end. But those are interesting conversations that we had. And similarly, the other way, um, the uh, uh, racial concordance leads to op uh, more open conversations, more deeper conversations often, right? Because, you know, uh, I, I, I see this with some of my patients where they're trying to find this common ground uh, with me based upon my race, as opposed to finding common ground on the fact that I like football, I like golf, right? These are things that we can all commiserate on, but they're trying to find this common ground. So that bias is already coming out. And so you can feel more comfortable sometimes with, with sitting in this space. The reality, however, too, is that we don't, we're, you know, only, uh, that's okay, McKee's probably better than me on this number, but only five, four or 5% of all physicians are black. And you may not always have those people in the places where you need them, quote unquote, need them, right? And so, um, you know, cultural competency is something that we are not teaching necessarily uh, to acknowledge or to address some of these issues that are formative to the healthcare outcomes that we see. And so, yes, um, we, I'm hoping as we've seen increased um, applications in this past year for medical school and for public health because of the, you know, again, some of the few silver linings of COVID. I'm hoping that that includes an increased number of, 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 of minority applicants because one of the things that you may not know is, you know, at least for Black men, there were more Black men in medical school in the 1970s than there were recently, right? And so oh. we need everyone to be on board um, to work towards providing this health care that we know these patients need. And, and, and also to say, you know, again, minorities aren't all exclusive, uh, exclusive to this. I may have a bias um, that is unacknowledged or an unknown to Asian patients. So if I'm sitting at, at UCSF, and I am not addressing my Asian patients enough, or we all, many of us suffer from this for ESL, English second language patients in providing the adequate care for them and the time 
you know, every physician knows it takes a little extra time when you have the translator and do the right thing uh, for those patients. And how do you do that for the uh, uh, appropriately to provide the care? So we have to acknowledge this cultural competency issue. That is so true. Uh, we could make the mistake of saying because we're black and brown skins, we get it. But in fact, my competency when it comes to uh, not just African-Americans, but um, Africans who have migrated to the country and understanding their cultural um, issues and sensitivities. And then you start thinking about um, uh, people of color from the Caribbean, and they're very different. And even uh, people of color who are urban versus uh uh, rural are very different and, and also regional differences. The best way to approach bias is to just say it's everybody's journey to to become more and more cultural competent. Uh, this is not it's not a punishment or an assignment that, you know, only white people need to have. Everybody has to be on a journey of improving their their competence in, in cultural competency. What, what that drives home is we talked about earlier, we you know, some people believe if you acknowledge this, that you are automatically, you know, uh, am I racist, right? And it doesn't mean you're racist. It means we have blind spots. And so as Dr. McKee said, this every person's journey, I think normalizes this. And, but and on, one, on one hand, on the other hand, one of the reasons this is so important is because, yeah, we have these bias, but you have this group of people that is doing so much worse than others, right? And so, you know, you could, you know, parse out that other groups are, you know, we're doing worse in different, you know, aspects and different disease management. Yes, but it's so glaring. And the data, as we started this out with, is so clear and so overwhelming, um, as Dr. McKee is saying. And we, we it's easier for us uh, to acknowledge other things, but it's so difficult to do this for many people in their heads. This normalization about this journey, I think is probably one of the biggest things that anyone listening to this podcast can take away. Mm -hmm. Dr. McKee, can you tell us more about how the Joint Commission is, is working to address these disparities in, uh, in both healthcare outcomes as well as representation amongst the, the healthcare workforce? Sure. Um, we, you know, we have some standards and expectations that we give healthcare organizations. And um, to be honest with you, it's not enough. Uh, obviously, um, everyone looks to the Joint Commission to solve uh, many of the problems in our society. And this is the kind of problem that we probably have a hand in it but it is a uh, multi-key stakeholder problem that needs to be addressed from many, many angles. Uh, that being said, however, we have to take our responsibility because it's a patient safety concern. So we can't just say, oh, it's difficult and we're not gonna ask the healthcare organizations to do anything. So we do have a requirement, some requirements regarding collecting data, the race, race and ethnicity data. We do have requirements about defining the language needs and providing interpretive services. And we have patient rights and mechanisms for individuals to escalate their concerns if they uh, have mistreatment, uh, experience mistreatment uh, in the course of their health care. And it does not have to be uh, race related. It could be any kind of um, treatment that did not meet your expectation. 
That being said, we're doing two other things, and I call it the carrot and the stick. The stick is always standards. You know, nobody wants new standards because they have requirements. But we know that these standards or standardization of processes is really what helps us reduce risk in an organization. Um, Everybody who has studied patient safety science knows that risk is introduced into any process when you introduce variation. So standards are an important part of, of safe care. It's a tool that we need to have. And so we're in the process of looking at standards that we could put out to help organizations begin to look at this problem because it's not ever going to be addressed unless healthcare leaders actually look for it and define it. And we we're calling those uh, efforts uh, in standards as to assess, look at your data, find a gap that is a safety concern and address. We're not saying how, we're not going to say when, but we're beginning to, to move organizations. And I believe the initial standards that are going to come out are not going to be very specific. And over time, we will see more and more precise guidance from the Joint Commission as to how to make improvements in eliminating these gaps. So that's the stick, which is, again, requirements. The CARROT is a national competition that we have now uh, announced, which is uh, an award called the Bernard Tyson Award, National Award for Excellence in the Pursuit of Healthcare Equity. And what we want to do is we've actually partnered with the corporate office of Kaiser Permanente. Many of you have remembered Dr. Bernard Uh, Tyson, who died suddenly in 2019, who was a champion of addressing inequities in care. And so we have joined with uh, Kaiser Permanente to put out this national award or this competition that invites all organizations. You can be ambulatory. You could be the Department of Defense. You could be the VA to highlight the work you've done to bring the data forward, show us that you have made a difference and all of the high performing entries are gonna be made available to the public to give them examples of the work that can be done. Because part of the problem is people, organizations don't know where to start. Uh, Dr. Johnston said, we're making it more difficult than it is. It's a performance improvement challenge like any other. It shouldn't be handled in any different way, Uh, but you're right. uh, It's being addressed as uh, too difficult to handle. So those are the two areas that we're working on at the Joint Commission. And I'm hoping that other regulatory bodies and other healthcare professional organizations also begin to work with their membership on initiatives to help them improve the cultural competency aspect of, of this journey. What I, I really appreciate is the, the, the carrot portion of this. So some friends of mine, Eugenia South, who's an ER doc at Penn, Paris Butler, who is a plastic surgeon, and Raina Merchant, who's a, another physician at Penn, put out a paper toward, uh, entitled Toward an Equitable Society, Building a Culture of Anti-Racism in Healthcare. And one of the things that they put forth is the financial argument, right? And quality care is cost-effective care, 
right? And when, if you if you are a healthcare system, and this is you know where Dr. McKee sits, working with healthcare systems, think about this um, from that standpoint, the financial aspect. Um, because if you if you acknowledge if you acknowledge and look at the data, it's clear whether you want to address it or not. These patients are doing worse, which means they are costing more to your healthcare system, right? Why not address this? Why not say, hey, wow, we could be actually saving some money here <laughs> by acknowledging this and addressing uh, this uh, inequitable care. And so uh, they brought that up. And this, you know, um, um, efforts by the Joint Commission, um, both in the carrot and the stick, really acknowledge um, and put a, a better structure, at least uh, hopefully for hospitals and systems to start with to uh, address this care. So I, I really appreciate that. Dr. Johnston, you may want to reach out to your colleagues at Penn and let them know that the uh, contest begins, the application will open on May 17th and they can go to the Joint Commission website uh, and look for the Bernard Tyson National Award and begin to apply. We, we, that's, that's the exact kind of talent that we want to hear addressing this issue. My, my, I'm, I'm glad we could bring you guys together for that. Um, <laughs> I, I want to know, yeah, I, I think that's a wonderful example of how, you know, the, the big system of, of Joint Commission is marrying with small, like individual efforts all around the country how else can an individual or a small group of people, you know, simple, humble surgery resident like myself, make a, make a difference? It, it sometimes, you know, for me, especially, I, I will admit, I hope it's okay for me to, to let you guys know this. I feel powerless sometimes. And I'd like to know from your perspective, um, what mechanisms are available to, to us individuals, small groups um, to help us fight against the structural biases that we observe in our workplace. You know, that's not an easy question, but I'm going to give you some examples of what I think um, as a resident, you're sort of in a difficult situation in terms of the authority of the organization and what you can do. But it would be great if our surgery departments began to stratify their outcomes by race and uh, by other minority groups and see if there is an opportunity or if there are gaps there. I would also say that when a serious adverse event occurs, because they do occur, that rather than we look for the typical, um, the typical uh, explanations of why it happened, which was, oh, there was not enough training, the staffing wasn't good enough, the equipment wasn't available, um, that we say, how could, is there any way if the patient or the victim was a person of color, is there any way that bias or racism could have, institutional racism could have contributed to this event? That's a serious question to ask. But I can tell you from the many sentinel events that we review at the Joint Commission, almost close to a thousand a year, there are events that from the moment that they described to me, I can tell you that it was a person of color. So I would say beginning the, those conversations with your colleagues and looking at the data that's within your purview, within the department, and seeing if there's opportunities there for, for improvement. Dr. Johnson, do you have any ideas on how he can get involved? 
Yeah, so I think there's a, when you look at the enormity of this, you're like, oh my God, this is so overwhelming. But these, there's these structural issues that are in place and then there are the individual, individual roles that we play. And so we have to kind of start small and start with ourselves, right? And so, you know, identify and look, be introspective. Where are my biases holistically, right? What am I doing? And so as a resident, who do you have that's around you? Medical students. And at this point in my career, I've met a bunch of medical students who are now attendings and um, fellows. Uh, and they said, you know, I remember when you did this. And I was like, man, I, I don't remember any of that. But it was the modeling of behaviors that resonated with them. And they took that with them. And then what did they do? They then in turn model behaviors, right? And so, you know, when you look across the, the country, like, so I'm here at Johns Hopkins, the legacy of John Cameron and surgery is huge, both nationally and internationally, right? And so many of us carry this legacy, um, not just at Johns Hopkins, but if you look at leadership across the country, many of them in surgery, many of them have, have a Hopkins lineage. Right. And so you, too, can have that same, not to say you're going to have a John, uh, John Cameron impact, but your impact on a trainee means something. And so I would start there. Right. And then, you know, you decide what is it that's your thing. And so if I'm going to go out into private practice, I understand myself and I'm more introspective. I'm going to provide this care. I'm in leadership within, you know, XYZ Community Hospital. And I've said to them, hey, you know, I'm seeing this, I'm following my, my own data and I'm seeing these outcomes for my, my, my patients and other patients, what can we do about this? And so you, it start, it's grassroots, right? You know, these things, there are multi-level barriers and facilitators to inequitable care occurring. And so you have to acknowledge that there are going to be multi-level solutions and it don't have to be where you're going to get trying an R01 or a P50 grant from NIH to study and do something. It can just simply start with you and build up from there. Thank you so much for that insight. I think it is in some ways kind of a cruel irony that, that the issues that are so vast, so large and um, intimidating are the very ones that need individual grassroots action, behavior modeling, like you say, to for us to really get a grasp on it. Well, thank you so much, everybody. Um, I learned a lot from this podcast and uh, and I really do appreciate your time. D does anybody have any final words of, uh, of advice or remarks? You know, I will close with saying, you know, for those that listen to this, this podcast, um, keep fighting, keep pushing. And, uh, many residents, um, oh, I know, listen to this because they tell me. <laughs> and, you know, you guys are the future. Um, and I think you guys are seeing a path forward. You're seeing national leaders pushing forward. Right, Dr. McKee is a national leader, uh, and not not just in DEI, even though those titles she has, she's been a national leader and is at a national organization that is in charge of many things in our daily lives. And this is something that she and the organization is centering. And so, please, please continue to push forward. Please continue to fight for your patients um, to receive the care that you know they deserve. Until next time, dominate the day. Oh,